Our Bible reading now. Let's come to our Bible reading. First John and chapter 2. First John chapter 2. And I think tonight I'm going to have to summarize and not preach this full message. I don't want you to be in fear tonight that we're going to be here to midnight. We don't want anyone falling out the window or uh, losing it uh, with an extended long meeting. We'll try and wrap this up as best we can. Uh, But I think the reading of it will help us. And I hope you have been reading uh, the chapter. And I hope that it's been soaking into your soul. The Word of God is like seeds. And every good gardener knows that you've got to soak the seeds. Don't forget. And you leave them in the water overnight or more. And they germinate so much more quickly. The same with the Bible. As we meditate on it, we've got to soak the seed. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which he had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because ye have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father. 
I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and ye have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, ye may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Amen. May the Lord in his grace help us to study his word and rest in it this evening. Let's pray momentarily for, for the Lord's presence. Dear God, we thank thee for this chapter of your word. We pray that thou wilt make us word-based Christians, lovers of the word and doers of the word. And I pray that I might be found faithful in my ministry of the word tonight. Open up this chapter to us. Oh, grant that we might see the wonder of it all, that the Lord hath saved us 
not just a little bit, but saved us lock, stock, and barrel from the world that we might serve and love the Father with all our hearts. Come and help us. Breathe upon us now. Bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For the benefit of a few that are here tonight and weren't with us for our meeting last week, when I gave the outline of the book, I want to repeat it. Chapter one is how come. Now that's based on this fellowship with the Father and with the Son. That's the theme of the book. Chapter one, verse three. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we explained that that is koinonia. It is more like partnership. It is more of entering into all that the Lord has for his people, this wonderful fellowship with the Father and the Son. How come? Chapter 1. Chapter 2. What happens? That's our study tonight. Chapter 3. From whom? Chapter 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Chapter 4, So what? Who cares? This is our outline now of chapter 4. And then chapter 5, Whosoever believeth. And if you read the chapter, you'll see that it is very much about faith. So tonight, it's chapter 2, and the question is, what happens? What happens when you're born again? What happens when you're brought into fellowship with the Father and with the Son? And I'm going to run down the chapter and give you 10 things. Number one, verse one, a new hatred of sin. My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And so do not take this as an excuse to go on in sin. It's not a license to sin. But nor is it a teaching that we're going to be sinless, perfectly sinless, because there's provision for those who fall into sin. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we're pointed back to the blood, and we learned of that in chapter 1. So... The first thing is a new hatred of sin. That's the first thing that happens when you're saved, when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your heart. Verse 3, we get a new love for God's word, his commandments. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And so there is now a new devotion, a new loyalty, a new delight in the word, and in the will of God and his commandments. Verse 8, there is a new walk, and it's walking in the light. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. Where is the light shining? In our hearts. We see things now we never saw before. We understand now through the eyes of the Lord. And we recognize that we're called 
to walk in the light as he is in the light. Then verse 9, this is the fourth thing, a new love for fellow Christians. The love of the brethren. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness. Now that's put negatively, but the positive side is that if you are born of God and the light shining into your heart, you've got a new love for Christians, for fellow believers. Number five is verse 12, a new liberty in Jesus' name. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Now, isn't that wonderfully positive? John is not writing to these people to knock them down. He's not trying to rob them from assurance. He says, your sins are forgiven you. And so here is the assurance of salvation. Now that theme will come up next week in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is all about assurance. It's about this fellowship with the love of the Father burning in our hearts. Now number 6 in chapter 2 is a new victory over Satan, verse 13, and over the world, verse 15 through 17. The world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of the Father abideth forever. And you will see the world. We get the victory over the world. So there's a new victory. Verse 18, there's a new loyalty. Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. There are those who were in darkness, false professions, apostatized. They went out. They were not of us. But in the true Christian, there's a new loyalty. They remain. They abide. And they rejoice in the truth. Verse 20, there's a new understanding. But ye have an unction from the Holy One. And ye know all things. Now, we would have to qualify that. That doesn't make us omniscient. Doesn't make us like God that we know everything. But we know what we need to know. We grasp the gospel. What we couldn't grasp before becomes abundantly clear. And isn't that the testimony of every convert? I can't understand why I didn't see it before. It's so clear to me now. That's the result of the new birth, a new understanding. Verse 24, a new abiding in the Son. Let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. Now, it's not just us abiding in the Lord. It's the Spirit of the Lord abiding in us. And it's His abiding that keeps us abiding. We'll see that in the chapter. Then finally, number 10, a new test of the new birth. Verse 29, if ye know that He is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of God. Every born-again Christian has a new interest in holiness, righteousness. Now, we may feel 
We may flop, we may grieve ourselves and grieve others, but there is within our hearts a new desire that we become holy. And it becomes our prayer, becomes our passion, our burden. Now, what we learn from this chapter by this this just cursory summary, conversion or the new birth that makes a sinner to be a child of God is radical. It's radical. It is absolutely life-changing. You can't see it otherwise in this second chapter of 1 John. Anyone who says, well, I think I might have changed my life, but there's no real change. There's no new nature. There's no new desires. The old things are still being rejoiced in. And there really has been no turn away from the world turning to the Lord. Salvation is radical. Now, this fights easy believism. And as you know, in North America, through various styles of evangelism, there has been the problem of people who say, oh yes, I prayed the sinner's prayer, I signed a card, I'm a Christian. And then they live just like the world. 1 John 2 addresses that. Conversion is easy. Yes, because it's the Lord's work in our hearts. We just pray a prayer and we're saved. That's true. But the outcome is dramatic. And we ought to expect a major change in anyone who has been brought to profess faith in the Lord Jesus. As Paul put it, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things pass away, behold, all things are new. Now, tonight the message is this. Reasons why conversion to Christ, the new birth, is dramatic. Because we get beat down. We get told, you're asking too much. You're being too fiery. You're too concerned about sin. You're too concerned about worldliness. And if you're ever going to build a church, if you're ever going to be a a popular ministry, you've got to tone it down and make this gospel more palatable to the carnal mind. Now, that's always a temptation. And I think any young preacher starting out is going to face it. He's going to say, if I'm ever going to get people to come and stay, I've got to minister in a positive manner and not expect too much and build a church without anything too radical. And of course, that's what the big ministries are doing. There are churches filled with people. They have a lit profession of salvation but their life has never really been changed. They have no real convictions about the world and holiness and reverence. And when the band starts up and the ways of the world are used in the church, they're quite happy with it. That's acceptable to them because we fear that their conversion or their profession may not be a real conversion.
And now there is really a ministry to reach that kind of mindset. We've got to address that mindset. And that really now is becoming the part of the work of faithful church ministry. Addressing the mindset that conversion is not really so radical. So the first reason is this. Conversion to Christ is radical because converts are made to know God in their hearts experientially. Now I'm going to base that heading on the word that John uses in this chapter, the word know, K-N-O-W. In the Greek language, it's gnosko. And it means to know in heart. Now, there's another Greek term for know, which is ido. And it simply means to perceive or observe. And there are many people who can say, I know God, I know Christ, I know the gospel. And they look on. They're really onlookers. That's how they know. That's their manner of knowing. They look on. They're observers. But when John writes here in this chapter and he speaks about people who know God, it's Gnosko. They know him in heart. Now we're going to take time to read some of the key verses in this chapter where this becomes all so significant. Let's look at verse 4. He that saith, Now, again, John's addressing those who are saying they're a Christian. They're saying that they know God. He that saith, I know him. Now, that's gnosko, and it means I know him in heart. And keepeth not his commandments is a liar. In other words, anyone who is so converted so radically changed by the new birth, he cannot say, I know God in heart, and then go off and not keep his commandments. It's radical, because it's experiential knowledge. It's knowledge not just of the head, but of the heart. In verse 5, Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we in heart that we are in him. We know in our hearts. We know it by our new birth. We know it by our new nature. It's the right thing and we know it in our very bosom. And then verse 7. Brethren, I write unto you no new commandment unto you, but the old commandment which you had had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true of him because the darkness is past. Uh, sorry, the old commandment is the word which you've heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. 
He that saith he's in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness until now. And then verse 13, I write unto you fathers, because ye have known him. Now that's gnosko, know him in heart. That is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you've overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because ye have known the Father in heart. This is the direct, specific wording that the Apostle John is using here. Verse 18 as well. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know in heart that it is the last time. We have the inner witness. The Spirit of God is witnessing to us. We know it in heart. And then the last verse we'll look at is verse 29. If ye know that he is righteous, if ye know in heart that he is righteous, Ye know in heart that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And so this is a heart religion. This is a gospel that doesn't just tweak our minds a little bit, but it turns the will of our very nature from an Adamic, fallen, sin-desiring nature to now the Spirit of God the new birth, we are partakers of the divine nature that we desire him and those things that are well-pleasing unto him. And so in practical terms, anyone who says that he's born of God, but there's no change in life, there's no hunger for the word, there's no desire for prayer, there's no keeping of God's day or God's commandments is false. Is false. That's the radical nature of this ministry of John right here. Now we move to the second reason. Conversion to Christ is radical because God converts souls through the power of his word. The Bible is the dynamite. This book changes our minds, our hearts, our nature, and it gives a mighty new power in our souls. Now let's go back to chapter 2, verse 3, and you'll see how John links this together. Hereby we do know in heart that we know him in heart. Now, I hope you get the, the logic in that one. Hereby we do know him in heart, that we know him in heart, if we keep his commandments. And so in every true convert, in everyone that is born again by the Spirit of God, there is going to be a direct link, a correlation a new looking to and resting in the authority of the written word of God. 
Now, why is that? How can that be? Because the instrument that the Spirit of God uses is the Word. Peter taught us that. 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And I think of our minister, Reverend Adorno, when he came under conviction of sin, what was the means the Spirit of God used? There was no person that, that, that was there, no person that he said influenced my, my ways or thinking. It was the Word. That's always the way the Holy Spirit works. He uses His Word. And it's this incorruptible seed that is planted within our hearts. The very law is written on the heart of the new Christian. Now, this is Christian doctrine. And I want to quote the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 5, just the last few lines. And it says, Our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bear witnessing, bearing witness by and with the Word in our hearts. And so these theologians, these Westminster ministers who compiled the Westminster Confession of Faith the very book of Presbyterianism worldwide, they put their stamp upon this doctrine that every time that God converts a sinner, the instrument is his word. And so there is born into that new believer a love for the book, a hunger for the word. And that's always the case. And this is what converts us, and this is the automatic loyalty that is in the heart of a child. Now, Peter also puts it this way, desiring the sincere milk of the Word. When a baby is born, it doesn't need to go to school to desire milk. It will thirst for the mother's milk, by nature, by instinct, if you will. And in every true convert, there will be a thirst and a hunger for the sincere milk of God's Word. I'm sure you can testify to that tonight, that once you didn't care, the Bible meant nothing. But as soon as you're converted, you're willing to stand up for the Bible. When I was first saved, I was hungry for the Bible. Nobody told me, Ian, you've got to read the Bible. Ian, you've got to read more of the Bible. Now, maybe I heard it in a general way from, from the pulpit. But there was automatically in my soul a true hunger for the Word. And so this conversion's radical. 
because we're born from the Word. And that Word is born into our very souls. Number three, conversion to Christ is radical because it powerfully turns our love away from the world to the Father. We're going to move to chapter 2 and verse 15. First uh, John, that is. First John chapter 2 and verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And here's the logic now. Here's his reasoning. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so it's radical. It's one or the other. You can't love the world and have fellowship with the Father. You can't serve the world and serve mammon and walk with God. can't do it. You can't be in the pleasure places of the world and come into God's house and worship with a true, genuine heart. And if you've been born again, you will rejoice in the love of the Father. You will be like what John said here in chapter 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It's amazing love. It thrills our hearts. But the world would rob us of that love in our souls. We've heard the old adage that a man is known by his friends. When a boy goes to school for the first time, and at lunch hour, he's going to be in the play group, and he's going to choose his friends. And inevitably, people choose the friends according to their own nature, according to their own basic values and inner heart. And when boys get together, they end up getting up to mischief. And so people get dragged into things. Like attracts like. Now, if we are children of God, born of the Spirit, with the Word of God born in our hearts, we can't love the world. We can't enjoy the blue jokes, the mockery, of spiritual things and godly things. And so everyone that is born of God will fall out with the world. That happened to me after I was converted. I was a member of the Young Farmers Club. I was converted at 18. And from my years, probably 15 through to 18, I was involved in the Young Farmers Club um, Looking back in the, in the scale of things in the world today, it was a relatively mild adventure um, uh, social group. But when I became a Christian and I was made the treasurer of that group, I had some responsibilities. I remember showing up with the treasury book and announcing someone needs to take this over because I'm not coming back. And I announced that I was a Christian. And that was among my country friends. And I knew I had to make a decision. I could not follow the Lord 
and serve the world at the same time. Now, nobody told me that. Nobody told me, Ian, you can't attend the Young Farmers Club anymore. No elder, no deacon, no pastor came to me and said, look, it's time for you to quit. I knew. I knew. I had spent years with these young people. But I knew I could no longer be a part of that group. It was the immediate power of my conversion. But we also see that that switch from the world is to the people of God. If we read verse 8 right on, we'll see a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness past the true light now shineth. But he that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. And instead of following the young farmers club who were unsaved, ungodly young people, I was quite happy to be in the company of the young Christians that were in Oma Free Presbyterian Church. And I remember one of the first choruses that I learned in that Sunday school, or that youth fellowship was, I have decided to follow Jesus. The cross before me, the world behind me, no looking back, no looking back. Conversion is radical, and we cannot water down the nature of the new birth, or we risk bringing the world into the church, the world into our own lives, and hindering the fellowship that we enjoy with the Father and the Son. And this now becomes a mark of our profession. And everyone here tonight has a decision to make. You're either going to follow the Lord or follow the world. You're going to go through with God, obey His Word, make friends with God's children, or you're going to seek after the worldly ways. Have you decided tonight to follow the Lord Jesus? That's a decision you must take. You must get on your knees and say, Lord, I want to follow you. I want to serve you. Take the world out of my heart. Keep it out of my heart. And give me the grace to love you and serve you only. Now there's one last thing. We're going to go to verse 20. Conversion to Christ is radical because converts are given an inner anointing of the Spirit. And here is a verse that has intrigued me all of my Christian life. But ye have an unction from the Holy One. An unction. A holy oil. It's an analogy for the ministry of the Spirit of God that works in our hearts. Now you'll notice that verse begins with but. But ye. That's in contrast to those who went out from them, who were false, who were in error, and they went out to the world. But ye have an unction from the Holy One. 
and ye know all things. What a difference. What a difference when you're living in the Spirit and the Spirit of God is abiding in you. Now, one final observation about this abiding of the Lord in our hearts. Look at verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, never leaves you, even in your bad day, even when you vex the Spirit of God, even when you have to repent of the worldly thoughts or desires. The Spirit of God abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but the same anointing teacheth you of all things. That's the ministry of the Spirit. He's our teacher. He's our guide. He takes the things of Christ and he makes them real to us. And as we grow in grace, he makes them more real. And it's because of his abiding, the Spirit's abiding in us, that we are able to abide in him. Look at verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. So it's because of that Spirit of God abiding in us constantly, continually, that we are given a new life to abide in him. That brings me back to John 15, to the parable of the vine and the branches. And the Lord Jesus taught the disciples to abide in him as the branches abide in the vine. That's the secret of Christian living. That's the secret of new life. The life, the sap, the flow of life from the tree going through the branches, producing new fruit. And we are just feeble little branches. But how does this come together? The Spirit of God enables us to abide, to draw our spiritual life, our victories, our graces, our strength, our otherworldliness from living and abiding in the Lord Jesus. One of the great illustrations of Pilgrim's Progress is when Bunyan described the fire that was burning in a hedgerow. And someone was coming along pouring buckets of water upon the fire at the bottom of the hedgerow. And Christian the Pilgrim asked, What's this? Explain this. And he took him around the other side of the hedgerow, and there was someone pouring on buckets of oil. And that was fueling the fire. And while water would quench fire normally, but when enough oil gets on, it keeps burning. Now the world and the devil wants to pour water upon your life. There's enough people to put you down. People said of me when I was converted, my friend said, Ian will last six weeks. I didn't want to challenge that at the time, but I'm still here. The Lord's still in my heart. And it's his spirit flowing into us that enables us to abide in him and draw all our strength from him. 
And then in verse 28, the final command, and now little children, abide in him. It's so John, isn't it? If you read John's gospel at all, it's so John, abide in him. That's just it. It's as simple as that. This new life in Christ, this work of the Spirit in our souls, this radical conversion, I'm a new person from head to toe. I've got a new nature. I've got a new faith, a new spirit, a new life. And it's eternal life. It's everlasting. Knows no end. And when we come to the end of life's journey, that spirit of God will still be abiding, pouring in grace, strengthening us in faith. And again, back to Pilgrim's Progress, Christian said that the stronger the faith, the shallower the water of the river passing over. The Lord will be with us even unto the end. And so I leave this with you tonight. Salvation, conversion, the new birth is radical. And don't let Anyone tell you differently, go to John chapter 2.